Well, we are continuing this series, RSVP, Thou Shalt Party, and uh, we are looking at the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament, and this weekend, we are thinking about Purim, Purim, and our theme is Purim, and we're looking at maturity in faith. Now, in a moment, we are going to dive into the book of Esther, because it's events described in the book of Esther in the Old Testament uh, that birthed the festival of Purim. But frankly, it's not much use just jumping into a scripture without understanding any context. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make five statements about the book of Esther, which will help all of us to understand what's going on here. And so if you don't listen to anything else, listen to the next 47 seconds. Just nudge each other right now and encourage each other to do that. Some of you are doing that. Some of you are going, I am not nudging anybody. We're independent from you people. Don't you come over here and start telling us. So here's the headlines. So first of all, all of this happened 2,500 years ago in the city of Shushan in Persia, where many of the Jews were exiled. They had been removed from their own land and taken there as a vanquished people. Two of the people living there are Esther, beautiful young lady, and her cousin Mordecai. The king at that time is a guy called Xerxes, and he is married to a woman, a woman called Vashti. Vashti irritates the king, and as sometimes happens with kings, he basically says, you're done, I need a new wife, and uh, Esther becomes queen. Uh, and then Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. The king is delighted with Mordecai, and he publicly honors him. There is an evil prime minister. His name is Haman. Haman's got political um, uh, ambitions. He's very envious of Mordecai. He wants the Jewish people destroyed, and so he plots, he casts a, a Holocaust plan to destroy all of the Jews in one single day. He takes the plan to the king, the king signs off on it. A Holocaust is about to happen. But then Esther discovers the plot, uh, encourages the king to change his mind, reveals that she too is Jewish. The king is ticked beyond belief, and he uh, asks who's responsible. It's Haman. They take Haman out, and they hang him on the gallows that was prepared for Mordecai. The Jews get vengeance on their enemies. So this is a bloodthirsty story of political intrigue and machination. It's uh, an intriguing story. That's the context. So now let's dive in to a couple of passages of Scripture. First of all, the conspiracy, Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. That's the plan, and the king agrees. Then there's a turnaround in Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? 
even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. This 4th of July week, as I say every year, um, we don't actually celebrate that in the UK, although Kay and I have a special routine uh, personally for the 4th of July, which involves going into hiding. We do that every year. But we do have a festival, uh, a feast that you don't celebrate here. We don't celebrate here in America. It's on November the 5th, and it's called Guy Fawkes Day. And we have fireworks, and we eat unhealthy snacks, and it's very similar in many ways. And what's it all about? November the 5th, 1605, a gentleman by the name of Guy Fawkes wanted to overthrow the British government. And so he planted gunpowder beneath the House of Commons, the House of Lords, our Parliament, and his solution to the political challenges of the day was just to blow the whole lot up. But his conspiracy was uncovered. Someone leaked the news. They arrested him and his friends, and they, uh, they sentenced them to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. What's that? They hang you first, then they cut you down while you're still alive. They cut you into quarters, and they take your intestines out. Don't mess with us, people. <laughs> oh, you did. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a big moment in our history, and a celebration was declared because parliament and democracy was preserved. And what happens is every year, and I've done this for years with my own family, we have the fireworks, and the kids make a guy, they call it a guy with a mask. And at the end of the evening, we put the guy onto the bonfire, and we burn him. <laughs> we are really civilized. And it only recently occurred to me how completely bizarre is this? Come on, kids, let's have a party and celebrate a public execution. It's nuts. It's all about a plot being uncovered and foiled. The Jews have something like it. Purim, it happened this year on the 20th of March. There's a carnival atmosphere. They wear masks. They burn effigies. It's all about this Esther story, as we're going to see, and it's a celebration of silliness and fun. But it is far more than that, as we are about to see. So first of all, if you're following in your bulletin, first of all, this festival, there's a call to grow up in decisive faith, to grow up in decisive faith. Look at Esther 4. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was crunch time. 
Jeremiah had prophesied an exile of 70 years and more than 70 years had passed. Ezekiel had prophesied that a new temple would be built in Jerusalem and the plans were drawn up. King Cyrus had authorized its building only to withdraw permission. This was a devastating, difficult time and now Haman, the prime minister, has planned a holocaust. We need to understand from the language here that it was Jews targeted. The edict read, the Yehudim, the Jews. Here's the thing. Any Jew could easily slip out from this predicament of this sentence of death. They could just say, what, me? Jewish? I, I, I speak the language of Persia, Farsi. I, I dress Persian. I eat Persian. I celebrate Persian celebrations. I'm just like you. Me? Jewish? No. But this was the moment, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, when the Jews took ownership of their Jewishness. And they did it at a time when it was mad to do so. And they didn't go undercover. They went public with sackcloth and ashes, identifying themselves as targets. There comes a time for all of us to be able to say clearly, I am a follower of Jesus. It is possible for a church this large to blend in with the crowd, to just come along and never actually have a moment where we say, right, that's me, I'm in. I remember something like that opportunity happened for me um, when, just a few months after becoming a Christian, before I came, went into ministry and went to Bible school, I was in banking, believe it or not. I think I single-handedly contributed to the major banking crisis of 2008. And I worked for a bank in the city of London, and I remember showing up for my first day, and I'm nervous, and it's a very competitive environment, and it wasn't very friendly. And I... I'm a new Christian, so I took the largest Bible I had. I mean, there was nothing subtle about it. And I had a Bible bigger than my head, and I walk in, and uh, I do the morning's work, and then I go down to the lunchroom, and it's packed with people. I don't know anybody, and I'm sitting there with this gigantic Bible. And there's this loud guy. Every office has that loud guy. And he looked across at me and he said, what's your name? And I said, Jeff. And he said, what's that? What's that thing? And I wanted to say it's the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> I'm studying eagles. And I said, it's a Bible. He said, what? I said, it's a Bible. Oh, my gosh, he said. And news got round the bank in about five minutes that John the Baptist was on staff. It was a decision time. I'm wondering if that's where some of us are at. Is that baptism happening? That's a decisive moment to publicly declare our faith. Is it time? Is it time to be clear or maybe to make a decision to follow Jesus? Is it possible that 
some might just be showing up, but have never really come to that place of saying, this is who I am. And you can make that choice even today. Secondly, the story. There's a conspiracy uncovered. There's a conspiracy uncovered. I've been studying a lot of Jewish commentators in, prepare, in preparing for this message. And they, the rabbis say that you can look at this story in two ways. The first way is to write it all off as coincidence. And the second way is to see the hand of God in all of it. If you want to call it coincidence, you could say it just happened that Vashti upset her husband and was replaced as queen. And it just happened that Esther became the queen. And it just happened that Mordecai saved the life of the king. And it just happened that Haman plotted as he did during Esther's reign. And it just happened that Esther threw a really good party and it just happened that the king listened to her and it just happened that Haman was hanged from the gallows that he'd prepared for Mordecai. It just happened, coincidences. Our Jewish friends say there's another way to look at this story. This was not coincidence, this was the hand of God at work, the great cosmic choreographer. We do not live in a universe where God is running a puppet theater and he pulls all the strings. Every happenstance has to be because he made it happen. God doesn't always get his will. If he does, why do we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? But the choreographer is able to bring together circumstances to get our attention. And I wonder whether that's been happening for some of us and we've just written it off. You had that conversation, didn't you, with that person and then you read that book, didn't you? And then you showed up here and the preacher was talking about this very same thing. And then you heard a song about, it's just coincidence, isn't it? Or is God trying to get your attention? I've been a Christian for a long while now. And doubt occasionally strikes because we serve someone who is invisible, Right? One day we're going to see Jesus face to face, so we won't have any doubts then. If you occasionally doubt now, it doesn't make you a bad Christian, it just means you don't actually happen to be dead yet. <laughs> but I look back on my life and on all the things that God has done, I don't have enough faith in coincidence to be an atheist. Has God been trying to get our attention. Thirdly, there's a festival established, a festival established, Purim. We read about it in, ex, uh, in Esther chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the months of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Let me just tell you this. Our Jewish friends at, at Purim, they go crazy. And it's noisy and boisterous and loud. They do this thing where they read the Esther story and the name of Haman, the bad guy, is read out 54 times. But here's what they do. They insist that no one ever hears that name. So every time they get to that point, 
when Haman's name is mentioned, they all jeer and shout and they have ratchets like rattles and they make as much noise as possible. And, and they write Haman's name on the soles of their shoes and they stamp on their shoes. They make a lot of noise and they eat cakes which signify Haman's ears. And uh, they, they, say the, they try and say the name of Haman uh, or, or his sons, his ten sons, in one breath. And, and sometimes it even goes wrong. Some rabbis actually teach their congregations to get drunk on this day so they won't know the difference between the name of Haman and the name of Mordecai, a practice that we are not advocating here. And people um, dress up in fancy dress. Recently at a synagogue, Obi-Wan Kenobi showed up. He is not actually part of the Esther narrative. Neither is Big Bird, but Big Bird was there as well. Someone showed up with a live goat, another person with a tuba. And every time Haman's name was mentioned, there was a blast on the tuba. It, it is noisy. It is a boisterous celebration of freedom. Yesterday in my country, the Yankees played the Red Sox to a crowd of 80,000, including Harry and Meghan. If you don't know them, they're kind of big over there. What an amazing thing. The 4th of July week in American baseball comes to England. The Americans are coming. The Americans are coming. <laughs> and, I, and I don't understand. If you love baseball, forgive me. I've tried. I've, I've been. I've watched, you know, and I just watch the crowd, you know. When they cheer, I cheer. When they shout, I shout. When they cuss, I, I praise the Lord. You know, I just... <laughs> And all those statistics, the pitcher has eaten breakfast 4.72 times in the last 5.1 years. Who gives a rip? But what was funny was watching or hearing about the British crowd. Because when that home run was hit, they didn't go, yeah, jolly good. <laughs> they went nuts. Purim is about getting excited about liberation. And sometimes I think we get together as church and we got this misplaced view of reverence and it's like, yes, Jesus has saved me. And I am deeply excited within. I've got joy, but it's very deep. There are going to be times of reflection and quietness. And I'm not saying that we always have to be loud. But ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, there needs to be times when in our worship we just cut loose and declare that Jesus has hit the ultimate cosmic home run. And that is really worth celebrating. Come on. Now, I mean... I mean, forgive me, but that was pretty good. But some of you were a little bit nervous, like, oh. can we do this? I was just thinking about this in between the services just now. Why is it that when Christians get excited, they're called happy clappy? 
But what? no one says that about the baseball crowd or the football. No one says, yeah, a bunch of happy clappies cheering for it. No one says that. But when we get excited, the, the idea is that there's something superficial about that. So I'm going to say it again because you've had a practice. My brothers and sisters, we declare today that Jesus has hit the ultimate cosmic home run. We'll keep working on it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's wonderful. Let's celebrate. Number four. Number four. With my thanks to the three people who stood up, by the way. That was kind of cool. Number four. Growing up, moving from romance to marriage. Growing from romance to marriage. Esther's name in the Hebrew means hidden. Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned once. Remember the Haman's ears, cakes? The Jews believed that the, uh, the filling of the cake, disguised by the dough, is like God's hand in the story of Esther, there but hidden. Many Jewish commentators believe that Purim was the day when Israel cemented their relationship with God like a marriage. Get this. What many rabbis teach that at Mount Sinai, with the fire and the Exodus story and the overwhelming works of God, that Israel had no choice but to respond to God's power with love. It was like a romance. He was their knight in shining armor who had rescued them. And what else could they do but respond? But at Purim... It's holocaust on the agenda. There is no mountain with fire. There is no Red Sea crossing. There was deliverance, but that came later. And now they have to decide, are they really married to God, if I can put it like this. I like what one rabbi says. He says, at Mount Sinai, love poured down from above. In Shushan, it rose from below. One writer says this, I believe it to be very powerful. He said, I've served in the ministry 31 years and I've come to understand that there are two kinds of faith. One says if, the other says though. One says if everything goes well, if my life is prosperous, if I'm happy, if nobody I love dies, if I'm successful, then I will believe in God, say my prayers, go to church and give what I can afford. The other says, though, though the cause of evil prosper, though I sweat in Gethsemane, though I must drink my cup at Calvary, nevertheless, precisely then, I will trust the Lord who made me. So Job cries, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I wonder whether some of us are graduating and growing from if faith to though faith. And as I look around this congregation and look into your faces, knowing so much that I know nothing of in terms of your stories and your journeys, knowing that people that I'm looking at right now are in a though 
period. May you be strengthened to stand firm and steadfast in a marriage with God, if you will, rather than a romance. Number five, growing up, moving from grasping to generosity. Moving from grasping to generosity. As I've been studying these feasts and festivals, here's one of the common denominators that I've noticed and I never saw it before, before we prepared this series. And that is God consistently insisting that the poor be invited in. That they have a place at the table of celebration. The rabbis teach that it is better to increase your gifts to the poor at Purim than add to your own table. Social justice is at the heart of this. This is not just a festival of fun, although it is that. We'll come to that in a moment. Social justice. There's a sense in which we celebrate, celebrate Purim here through the year, but especially with our one day to feed the world weekend, August 24, 25. This theme of praying and giving and going Growing beyond our own individual needs and saying we want to give. What is faith if it's not affected the way we spend? Because our spending is an expression of our life values. You want to know what's important? Check someone's pocketbook and their calendar. That'll tell you. Growing beyond grasping. Well, the last thing is this. And that is growing up, moving from pleasure to play. From pleasure to play. I think we need to rediscover the sanctity of fun. I think we need to rediscover how important play is. I believe that we are suffering from what is called an Augustinian hangover. What is that? Augustine was a third century theologian and philosopher who said that when he came to Jesus, he had to abandon fun and play. He was even nervous about enjoying a meal. And that kind of thinking has distilled down into the church so often so that people are nervous about fun. I want to make this statement. Fun is a serious business. Tony Campolo says there isn't anything frivolous about having fun. Learning how to have fun is one of the most serious subjects in the world. I've been reflecting on that and it suddenly dawned on me this week that so many of the world's problems are because we don't know how to play nicely. So in the UK right now we have an epidemic of binge drinking and young people dying why? Because they haven't learned how to play nicely. We hear about stuff like recreational drugs. That is play misplaced. But there are bigger problems when you don't know how to have fun. Nietzsche, the philosopher, the son of a Lutheran minister who hated the idea of God, Nietzsche, whose ideas were taken by the Nazis, he was a hero of Hitler's. Some say that they distorted his views. But Nietzsche partly rejected God because of this. Look at this statement. He said, no one in my parents' church ever had fun. 
I want to say this, God is fun and he loves fun. John Ortberg says, God is the happiest person in the universe. Now, I'm going to make a statement which I, I've thought about really carefully because there are young ears listening. But I, so I want you to listen carefully because I want to phrase this appropriately. When one considers the action, the interaction of human intimacy which sometimes leads to procreation. <laughs> you getting what I'm talking about? <laughs> bit nervous because a preacher friend of mine got into a lot of trouble because he talked about sex in the pulpit. Not sex in the pulpit. <laughs> now get this. When it came to the celebration of that intimacy, he said carefully, God could have invented a methodology of sharing that intimacy and the birthing of babies could have resulted from a simple, firm handshake. Bless your sister. <laughs> but he did not. He, he designed, the creator designed, this ridiculous physiological tango, which is so utterly absurd that one perhaps is occasionally tempted to laugh out loud while doing it. And I can't believe that I just said that. <laughs> I, for those watching on the internet, I, Darry Northrup, I apologize. <laughs> you say, what are you talking about, Lucas? Listen to me. Our sexuality is prophetic. It speaks to us of the playfulness of the creator God. Some of us need to discover again the freedom of play that is not destructive, self-obsessed. The power, if you will, of laughter. Let me finish this by telling you about Gemma and Doris. Gemma is a nurse in the UK. She normally works the night shift. She shared this story with me personally. Gemma, it was two or three o'clock in the morning. The ward where she was working was sleeping and the phone rang and it was the emergency room. The doctor in the emergency room said, Gemma, we have Doris here. Doris is dying. Her vitals are fading. We have her currently on oxygen, but she doesn't have very long. Her relatives are with her. And we don't want her to die in the hustle and bustle of the emergency room. Do you have a bed where, and a room where we could let her die peacefully? And Gemma said, we can do that. And so some minutes later, the, they arrived. And Gemma, who's a follower of Jesus, settled Doris, who's she later discovered was a follower of Jesus. Doris is in a coma. Her vitals fading, as I said. She settled her 
in a private room. She turned the lights down so that Doris would not have to die in that fluorescent glare. And she said to the relatives, just be with her, just hold her hand, it, it won't be long now. And then Gemma stepped outside the room and just waited, wanting to give the family some peace. Just then, one of her nursing colleagues arrived, a really funny lady who just, just really funny, hysterically comical. And this lady started to describe her day to Gemma. She had gone for a job interview, got lost, and drove her car into a city park onto a cricket field pitch during a game. Not good. And the way she's telling the story, Gemma starts to giggle. Then the giggle morphs into a laugh. Then the laugh morphs into hysterical laughter. And suddenly Gemma realizes that her laugh is reverberating down the corridor. And behind that wall, dear old Doris is trying to die in peace. And so Gemma knocked on the door because she felt so unprofessional and this was wrong and inconsiderate, laughing at a time like this. She knocked on the door, opened the door, and Doris, Doris is sitting up in bed laughing. Her oxygen mask removed. And Gemma said to Doris, what happened to you? Which is medical terminology for, you're supposed to be dead, honey. And Doris said, well, my dear, I was in a very dark place and I suddenly heard the sound of laughter and I thought to myself, I don't know the joke, but I think I'll join in. And I did. And here I am. Are you the girl with the beautiful laugh? Doris didn't die that night. They discharged her the next day. She laughed her way back into life. So don't ever let one of those corseted Christians who mistakes an expression of mild constipation with that of fervent sanctification, don't ever let them steal your joy. Don't stop laughing. Don't stop celebrating. Have fun in Jesus' name. Now, now, we're going to pray in a minute, but I just need to let you know what's going on in, in here right now, which is like normal. You see, I've just said that, and everything in me wants to give you a qualifying statement, but, but make sure you're good. Don't be naughty. And you know that from what I've just said. I just needed to express that so I don't get home today. And I go, Good, clean, beautiful, fun, and play. Let's pray. Lord, we are so glad that you are who you are. Your playfulness, your creativity, the delightful person that you are. For any of us, Lord, who, as we look at this, festival. It's time for us to decide. It's time for us to be clear. 
to make our stand, maybe even in baptism. Help us, we pray. Help those of us who have been writing your hand off as coincidence. Help us to respond to you. Help us to worship with joy and effort and energy. We too are a liberated people. Help us and help those especially who find themselves this weekend in a place where they are needing to graduate from if faith to though faith. And before I continue this prayer, if that's where you find yourself, take a moment now just to whisper to the Lord in prayer what you'd like to whisper to Him in prayer. Not if, but though. Help us to grow, Lord, from grasping to generosity in our giving, our sharing with those who do not enjoy the life that we live and the privileges that we have. Help us to play and to play well and nicely. Help us to model what it means to be a joyful people. And those of us, Lord, finally, who, when we relax, we feel guilty. Help us to unfurrow our brow, unclench our fists, and live in a way that you would cause us to live. So we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen.